Hello and welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you guys doing today? It's a rainy, rainy day. It is, at <laughs> least in the DMV area. Hope that you guys are having a wonderful Sunday and we have a great show planned for you today. Yes, we do. We are actually going to be talking to Miss Hollis Gentry of the National Museum of African American um, History and Culture. So welcome to the show. Hello. So, so <laughs> pleased to, to have you. I'm happy to be here. Yes. And, and how is this Sunday finding you? Um, it's a, it's, it's kind of grayish outside, so it's perfect weather to be inside, uh, you know, uh, and doing research <laughs> or talking about genealogy, so. Uh, okay. Which know. is awesome. That's our life, right? That, that's just our life. Yes, we, we tend to live it 24-7. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so if you would like to kind of tell, uh, speak a little bit about your, your background. And I know that both Donnie and I are fascinated about how you kind of came into the job that you have. <laughs> um, I don't even know where to begin except to say that I, like most of us, started when I was a kid. Uh, and that stemmed from some questions that were asked when I was in elementary school. And I had this one ancestor that um, I was named after. And she fascinated me because she was uh, allegedly descended from a tribe of um, Indians from Long Island, New York. Oh. My middle name is Lucretia. Her name is Lucretia. And furthermore, she was named after an abolitionist, Lucretia Mott. And she was this odd character, uh, clairvoyant, everything else under the sun. And she lived to be about 98, and she died about six years before I was born. So there are a lot of stories that circulated. And about her, and so I set out at an early age to try and find this connection. And by the time I was in junior high school, I used to visit the libraries with my mom. By the time I was in high school, that's around the time when Roots aired. And because I lived in Maryland, and because my family was also from Annapolis, and we had access to a Hall of Records, uh, somehow or another, I thought I was going to follow in Alex Haley's footsteps. And <laughs> I really, I, I was probably one of his biggest fans. And I started digging into the records, and I learned that he went to the National Archives. Uh, I was going to the National Archives in high school and through college, and just, just took over my life. Um, I had the good fortune to be in this area that had, you know, the largest library complex in the world, uh, the National Archives was here, then you know you had the DAR library. And I, I, I was just born and living in the right place. And uh, I've worked in libraries most of my life. I was even you know, volunteering when I was in elementary school. Never wanted to be a librarian. I wanted to be close to the source. I always saw myself as uh, in, in the capacity of working in libraries sort of as a sort of employee kind of uh, patron combined. Mm -hmm. And so I figured if I worked for a library, I would have access to all the behind the scenes uh, information I thought was there, you know, like it was some kind of secret vault somewhere that had that. And uh, what it helped me do was learn how to uh, find things in libraries and conduct research. And so the library has always been my place, my foundation 
for research, and then I just branched out to archives and other places. How I got to the Smithsonian sort of is a long and winding uh, process, but this is my second go-round at the Smithsonian. I was there in the late 80s, early 90s, sort of at the, uh, the beginning of some of the legislative efforts to really push for the foundation or founding of the museum. And I used to uh, dream about working for that library. I said, you know, if, they, if that museum ever becomes a reality, I want to be working at the library and I want to go there to provide sort of extended, deeper uh, research for the curatorial staff because I understood how museums functioned. And I felt that if I worked in the library, I would be in the perfect position to assist them, to uh, work with the public in a reference capacity, and then also to be within walking distance of the National Archives, the Library of Congress and DAR. I mean, this is a fantasy I had before I even knew where the museum was going to be located. Wow. So could you imagine actually working for a place and then during your lunch break, you just get to kind of like go in, do a little bit of research? Just the whole thing. I mean, she just, her whole fantasy, everything just, you just, you, um, you dreamed that. This, so we need to thank you for where it is and everything. <laughs> and it's really funny because I mean, I had it all, I had it all laid out. Uh, I spent years before, uh, this is, you know, the early years of the internet, before the internet, before we had the database systems in the Smithsonian, trying to figure out where the African American collections were located, trying to locate the, uh, the concentrations of you know, the um, collections, the, uh, the different artifacts, the different publications and things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I come back, it's been, I think it's sort of a hiatus of 20 years. And the Smithsonian is like even greater than it was before. And now it's all connected digitally or a good portion of it is connected digitally. So the things that I was doing by hand, you could do you know, with a click and, and, and right. <laughs> I'm, but I'm happy to see those developments because that means that we can really dig into these resources and connect them with our research. I mean, it's not an easy job and I'm not gonna try and pretend that it is, but most genealogists I think are very curious and they're, they're lifelong learners. And they're always willing to take the extra steps to uh, figure out how to relate what they're doing to any other subject they encounter. And so, you know, when you go down those rabbit holes, well, <laughs> you have a lot of them at the Smithsonian. And I think that uh, it's sort of, I can't say it was set up for us, but um, it sort of is the perfect environment for us to connect our own personal histories with the world. Um, and so I'm really happy to be here. Um, what I want to stress to you is in coming to the Smithsonian for its resources, think mainly of your family history in the context of cultural history. Um, and instead of thinking of it in terms of being able to easily access some of the content and that is you make a uh, very quick connection to your family history or your genealogy. Uh, well, there is so much at the Smithsonian to, wow. to research. And you know, I was 
I was stressing over this. It's like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to cover all this in a short amount of time, but um, I think primarily what's really important is to uh, invite you to visit the Smithsonian online and just go wherever your curiosity takes you. Wow. Well, what you said was so true because <clears throat> my cousin Donia actually took me to the museum. Uh, that was my, my first visit. You'd already been a number Probably of times. Probably five times before. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. We're downstairs, motoring along, taking it all in, literally turn a corner, and then there's the ex there was the exhibition for, Thomas, Tom Jefferson. for Thomas Jefferson mm -hmm. and Sally Hemings, who are my yeah. people. Kind of wasn't expecting it, and um, but it was really moving to, to kind of see it the, the way that it was done. So that was my kind of personal connection to that. So before I start asking the first question about the, about the library, um, you're getting a lot of love from our audience. Yes, that's what I wanted to get into. <laughs> Just real quick before we even go there, you have a lot of family, not necessarily family, but people yes. you've helped. Um, yeah. other genealogists, they're all just wishing you just saying, hey, Hollis, um, you had one guy from, this is actually a lady, from Canada, Brampton, Ontario, Canada. Greetings to Hollis, who helped me pull the full military records for Dr. Anderson Ruffin, Dr. Oh, Anderson okay. Ruffin Abbott, first African-Canadian doctor who was a surgeon during the Civil War. So they wanted to, I, I felt like I needed to tell them to say hi to you for them. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you is there, there seems to be, there's not a direct correlation between being a librarian or a genealogist or being a genealogist and a librarian. But I do, in, in the years that I've been doing my research, I, I have noticed an overlap. And we get a lot of questions about oh, how can I turn genealogy into a profession? And I don't think most people think librarian would be the um, route to go. See, I'm sort of, I'm a specialist. I'm an information specialist, not a traditional librarian. Mm -hmm. And I, ironically, it's librarians who are partly responsible for the creation or establishment of ancestry. The uh, founders were looking for uh, a business. They were uh, sort of uh, consolidating printed known material. And they were going around to libraries selling these, uh, I don't know if you remember back in the day where they had the microfilm and microfiche. Mm -hmm. And uh, they went around to libraries trying to sell the material. And uh, several of the librarians said, well, you know what? Uh, I think the area that you would really do a whole lot better in is genealogy because we have tons of people coming to our, our, uh, our libraries. And if you focused on genealogy and, and packaging materials for that, I think you'll do very well. And uh, so, and, and of course they were correct because they knew their, their patrons, uh, they knew who were visiting their uh, libraries, but the, the correlation or the, the, the connection to libraries in the genealogy field, I think it's something that has evolved over time. I mean, I saw it clearly as a, as a young user that the libraries, that pathway led easily to uh, my research needs. It's, it's like I, I needed to understand who librarians were and what they did and how they could help me. And you know, I was uh, putting in requests for interlibrary loans in high school. So they started me on my path. And they're also, you'll find uh, local libraries having the genealogy and history rooms and that sort of thing, or 
the vertical file collection. So librarians have always, I think, probably from the beginning of their founding in this country, uh, been sort of in tune with genealogical research. So it's sort of a natural connection. Uh, what's happening in the field now is that genealogy is exploding everywhere. It's, it's like um, there are so many different businesses that are, are emerging um, in ways that you wouldn't normally think. You know, libraries were traditionally the place where everyone went for research. And then if you were really an expert researcher, you might venture out to a museum or an archive or historical society. But I think libraries have always welcomed genealogists. They've always welcomed people who are interested in history, local history, personal history. So it's, there's, a, there's a natural connection. There's also a subfield in the library profession of genealogy librarians. And I think um, in the realm of African-American genealogy, I know of Leslie Anderson, who's at the library in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, in Northern Virginia. Then there's uh, Sherry Camp, who was, uh, who is a member of OGS. Who's, yeah, uh, yeah, I know her. <laughs> no, I'm seeing you now, finally. Um, so, um, and there are a lot of other librarians who I can't uh, rattle their names off the top of my head, but in, in the African-American genealogy field and in the larger uh, genealogy field. Uh, you see an example of that, of course, in Salt Lake City. Then you see Kurt Witcher out in uh, Indiana. Uh, that guy is just like, he's phenomenal uh, in terms of the, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm going off on all these different tangents, but there's always been uh, an interest, there's always been a connection with genealogy and library field. Excellent. So your library in particular, it's, mm -hmm. um, I have to say it, it is one of the unsung hidden gems of DC. Yep. And basically for the rest of the show, that, that's what we're gonna be talking about. If you can give um, the audience an, an idea of the kind of different collections that you have in the library and kind of the story about how that how collection actually came together. Mm -hmm. Well, what I wanna first say is that uh, the Smithsonian is a collection is a collection, has uh, 19 museums, and every museum has at least one library. So a lot of the libraries are hidden gems. Uh, we support the research of the curatorial staff, our fellows and interns, and then other researchers. We have a lot of people who are specialists and experts in fields that I can't even pronounce. I mean, you know, it's like you're just discovering it, and then, and then you realize there's an expert for that, you know. Um, but the the idea behind having the libraries is to provide research assistance and support to the community. And um, most people don't know that they, the libraries exist, um, except in the, on the rare occasion when they reach out to the Smithsonian, when they're doing research on an artifact or item that they've discovered or they realize is, has been on exhibit at the at one of the museums and they want to delve further or do a little bit more research on that. And that's when they typically are connected to the libraries. So it's sort of like a built-in factor with a new museum. They have to have a library to provide the research support. Um, I'll say that most of the libraries will focus on, well, we're, we're supporting the curatorial needs. So whatever the curators find necessary or needed, 
greatly directs and guides the uh, subject matter of the collection. Whatever supports them in their development of exhibitions is primarily what we will uh, acquire. And then we'll focus on the different subjects, um, whatever that may be. So for Namak, uh, the focus is on African-American history and culture. But that covers a broad spectrum of subjects. So. Um, one of the things I enjoy about it is looking at some of the newer uh, publications that are surfacing related to African American history and culture. It's like being, it's like having your own little personal library focused on African American history. And um, I, I am sort of at the point now where I realize that we don't have enough space to cover all of it. I mean, not that it's, it's sort of a, a new revelation to me, but um, the subject matter has exploded in so many different directions that it's hard to keep up with how the field has grown in the arts, the humanities, the sciences, and so forth. So, so. what is the, I know because there's, there, I, first of all, I did not know that each museum had a, had a library in it. No, that, that is, um, that's amazing. So now I'm ready to dig in everybody's library. But we're <laughs> we going we gonna to come back to that. Um, we know that you guys also, the Smithsonian, the History Center, has a family history center, as yes. well as the resource where you, where you work in the library. What is the difference between the two? And, um, you know, how, how do they work together as far as correlation is concerned? Well, the libraries, it's a central unit. It's separate from the museum. So all of the libraries are connected. And so we function from a central administration. Uh, and the museum is separate in, in the sense that it is a different unit. The Family History Center is guided by the mission of the museum. So it's focused on genealogy in the African-American context, historical context, whereas I uh, cover or work with the genealogy um, general, and I'm also a specialist and an expert in African-American genealogy. So I can cover anything. They tend to focus in the Family History Center on African-American genealogy, uh, programming surrounding African-American history, family history, and genealogy, although they will um, work with visitors from all over the globe. Whoever comes into the center, they assist with research. And I tend to work uh, primarily with the curatorial staff. I do a lot more uh, library reference work. So if you are sending in queries related to history or genealogy, uh, I field those kinds of questions. I am off the mall, so you don't really see me as much as you see the uh, staff who work in the Family History Center. That's a big difference, I'll say. And in terms of the library, is there a mix of things like black family history books, African-American well, African family history books, supposed equivalents of African-American lineage books, those sort of things? Well, we, we are not a, a genealogy library. All of the library collections are connected through uh, a central system. So for example, the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum used to focus uh, 
used to be sort of the African-American mm -hmm. subjectualist at one time. And the American History Museum has a lot of material related to history and genealogy. You also find some of those materials at the portrait gallery, but they're more of a biographical nature. So the materials are spread throughout the Smithsonian, which is why it's to access it through our central catalog to find where those uh, uh, holdings are. Um, we have some of the more contemporary uh, genealogies. Um, I've been trying to, as we gain funding, uh, put in a request for certain genealogy publications. You know, first on our priority list is uh, those that are related to African-American genealogical research. But then I want to uh, have some of the more general ones. Uh, we don't have the space to collect uh, an extensive number of African-American family histories and genealogies, but we do have them in our collection. I have been looking for some of the rarer ones that are uh, least likely to be out in circulation. Uh, so I've been focusing on some of those. Excellent. And if someone wanted to get a sense of the titles that are, that are actually in your collection and available, is that, can they actually go to the um, African American History Museum online and actually do a search to see what's in there? Yes. We also have, uh, more importantly, so that you can find where the, the uh, various publications are located in whatever library branch they're located. It's at um, the address for our catalog is library.si.edu. And you can plug in genealogy, African-American genealogy, uh, the different subject headings, family history, or what have you. And it will give you the results and tell you where the library is uh, located. Uh, it'll link you to the branch where that publication may be located. So that's the first step. Uh, but I would also suggest that if you want to really start digging into what the Smithsonian have, has, is to look at our collection search center, which is a database that links everything that we have. And that's, uh, that address is collections.si.edu. And that will put you in, <laughs> in the realm of the Smithsonian world in terms of our, our collections, our artifacts, our media of all different formats, and our books, and the archival uh, collections as well. Excellent. And also to remind our audience, please do feel free to come in and, and ask your questions too. I actually do have a question from an audience okay. member. Um, it is right here. How do you search for depression era photos or are you able to search for depression era photos um, as far as through the Library of Congress or referred to? Okay, they said that how to search for depression era photos for Utah Green County, Alabama, Library of Congress and NARA, what's that? National Archives mm -hmm. <laughs> referred me to the Smithsonian. Both of them referred them to, to you guys. So. so as I mentioned before, go to our collection search uh, right. website and enter in, uh, you, there are various ways to enter and conduct the research. You could put in the string of uh, you know, depression, Alabama, and look for the results 
and then sort of whittled um, out and, and dig down into the different subject headings that will put you closer to that. That's one of the best ways that I can suggest that you start with your research. You may be very well overwhelmed by the number of hits that you receive, but if you focus on the chronological era and then you focus uh, geographically, that will put you in, that will provide you with a narrower uh, number of research results. Okay. Excellent. And if someone wanted to book time, not necessarily, well, either with you or with one of your colleagues, is that something that they can actually arrange before they arrive to the library? And if so, is there a fee or a charge for that? There's, there's no fee. Uh, right now we are teleworking, so we couldn't uh, visit with you in person anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, you can send in a request to ask a librarian at si.edu and send a request with a sort of description of what you're looking for and which, what you're interested in. And that will be fielded to us. I'm just giving you something that's very easy and simple to remember. Ask a librarian at si.edu. Is it the or a? Ask a, A-S-K-A -A librarian at si.edu. I'm just I'm typing sorry. it in as you go. <laughs> You're saying it a little bit too fast. Okay. Um, so I want to interrupt real quick. We're having some type of technical for some people. They're not able to see her. Ah. Yeah, I know. I don't know what's it's, going on, but I wanted to just put that out there to a fever so that they know he, that he can check it out and see what's going on. Thanks. Mm -hmm. um, so my question, my next question, you transitioned from the DAR um, to, to the Smithsonian. How was that transition different as far as going from one place to the other? Because I, I now work at the DAR in the same place that you was working and in the same area. So, you know, how, how did it make your transition different? Well, see, as, as I mentioned earlier, I've worked in libraries most of my life. So I've worked in special libraries. I've worked in university libraries, law library, I've worked for NIH, um, some societies. So I, I, I've even worked at a seminary. So I am one of those persons who's sort of a jack of all trades, or I, I'm pretty nimble. And uh, when I went to DAR, I already had experience working at the National Archives. I'm, I'm sorry, at the, um, at the Smithsonian, and spending a lot of time at the National Archives. So I, you know, my day-to-day -day reality was the National Archives, the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress. My life, my day from morning till evening has always been in a library and environment. The DAR is a special library uh, focused on genealogy and local history. So that's sort of a, you know, a high concentration of a certain type of collection of materials. And I worked on the library side at one point, then I worked on the genealogy side at one point. And so when I went to the Smithsonian, I was already familiar with its system and I already knew how it functioned. So the transition was easy in one sense because I even saw familiar faces. Um, it was challenging in the sense that I had to transition from working for a private lineage society to a, a broader uh, library uh, system. And it, it's sort of like 
you know, going from this small library to this humongous library that had uh, information in every direction one could possibly think of, and then some. Uh, but I feel that the time that I spent at the DAR prepared me for the work that I'm doing now at the Smithsonian. So I have a certain amount of understanding about American history and the development of our nation from the East Coast to the West Coast and North and South that I, I would not have had had I not spent the 12 years at the DAR. So um, by reviewing the lineages, I was able to understand some of the challenges that, that researchers face. I also was exposed to a broader sense of American history in terms of the resources that are available, the various institutions that have holdings, and also I was able to plug in my own personal experience in working at different archival institutions or doing research there and uh, connecting them across, uh, you know, or, or attempting to connect them by searching uh, specific families. So uh, it, the transition wasn't as hard as one might think because I was very well prepared. And, and remember now, I dreamt that job into being. <laughs> you so. did more than dreamt that job. You, you, did, you did everything. You're the reason why the African-American Museum is where it is. Because yeah. you guys, for those that don't know, the proximity of everything that she fantasized about is yeah. literally right where she's talking about. It is all walking distance. I work at the DAR and I am not a block away from, from the library. Then the Library of Congress, well, from the Smithsonian, then the Library of Congress, the archives, everything is literally right there. She did more than fantasize it. She brought it to life. <laughs> So, I mean, at this point, I am thanking you um, for, for that, that whole, you brought it to fruition. You, you did all of that. Well, I have two excellent follow-up questions yes. to that, to, what, to exactly what you were speaking on. First is from Mary Elliott. Would you please speak to the, the role of scholarly publications in assisting with genealogical research? Oh, that's a big, that's, that's, this is an area where, this is sort of where I dwell. And I will say that probably unlike a lot of genealogists, uh, those who influenced me most in the early years were the scholars who were breaking new grounds in areas asking questions about African-American history and culture that, and, and, these, and I, I'm talking about the historians of the, I'll say the 70s through the 90s. Um, they began to ask questions once they were able to really dig into the archive to uncover records that had been ignored previously. Um, I credit the scholars at the University of Maryland College Park, the Friedman and Southern Society Project, uh, scholars like Herbert Gutman, of course, uh, John Hope Franklin and uh, Franklin Frazier, and all of these scholars who were asking questions that others had not thought to ask or didn't believe could be asked because they didn't believe that these record sources existed. And then once they started digging into the archive, they found all sorts of examples about African-American history and culture that really contradicted everything that had been written about them prior to that period, you know, the 60s and earlier, the 50s and earlier. And uh, I am seeing now with the uh, increased access to the archive, 
to records that historians are beginning to ask newer questions, but they're not only simply asking the questions, they're beginning to develop uh, these humongous, massive projects in digital humanities where they're getting funding to go in and gather these large groups of records and to create these data sets to begin to ask these questions. And, and because they're dealing with people, they cannot avoid dealing with genealogy and family history. I laugh sometimes when I go to some of the, or I chuckle to myself when I, I attend some of the lectures and they're, they're talking about, you know, the connections of family, connections of individuals. And I was like, no matter what they say, it's all genealogy to me, you know? Right. And, so, and, and so there is more of a collaborative um, process that's taking place now with, between scholars and genealogists. Uh, Scott, the historians are beginning to understand that we master research techniques uh, for locating individuals and putting them in the context of families and communities and larger groupings that they don't necessarily know how to do or have the time to huh. really drill down to the individual level. So there has come, I think, a greater appreciation for the work that we do. And they're beginning to understand the context that we're examining and that they're beginning to understand that there's an overlay. So I'm seeing more growth and development in both fields as a result of it. So, I mean, we all have our reference collections, you know, the latest whatever comes out and, you know, we're recommending it to others. You gotta read so-and-so, um, the latest history of whatever. And so the scholars are coming to our resources to our web pages, to our, our websites, to our historical societies, to our genealogical societies, or to experts in the field for references to help them understand some of the research that they are conducting. Well, that's something I, that we've advocated for for a long time. Donnie and I have been advocating, and there's other genealogists as well, that we have, we have a voice and I guess you would call us public historians. Because you know we, we don't have that degree that actually says that we're historians, but because we're looking at family history at that microscopic level yep. rather than that macroscopic level, mm -hmm. that it would be nice if our voices were actually included in those kind of conversations. Yeah, I just sent a message out to somebody um, today and just talking about the fact that the people that they don't pull to the table are genealogists because we actually, like Brian said, we, we collect a, a we collect a sense of what actually happened simply because we're looking for our families. And when we're looking for our families, I don't know about anybody else, but I get, I get transported. And I'm actually seeing and feeling and knowing what they have gone through, what, they, what they're experiencing during that time period. So I can give a little bit more information from a personal level because I've actually found it and found proof of what that person has gone through. So to not hear my voice or your voice or Brian's voice or any genealogist's voice at the table, that's starting to bother me a little bit <laughs> because we're just not, in, we're, you know, we're not included. Here's the thing. We have voices. Yeah. And, 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 here's, and you have to also understand that a lot of historians, just like we have, we spend a lot of our time researching. We spend a lot of our time asking questions, uh -huh. uh, spend a lot of our, our time trying to find the answers to those questions. The historians are no different. Uh, you have to take a bit of time to step back and look at their profession, look at 
the challenges that they face and understand where they're coming from. Um, you know, genealogists differ because we'll talk to anybody if they have, if we think they have the information that we're looking for. You know, we don't have certain types of barriers to our research. You know, you have to go and gather the information and analyze it to see if it's relevant to your research, if, it, if it's valid enough um, for you to use. But the historians have a certain process that they have to look to. And they don't necessarily, it's not that they're ignoring us, but sometimes they're not aware of our existence, our specific existence um, that may be relevant to their research. But I do think that the newer, when I say newer uh, crop of um, genealogists, historians, I call them genealogy historians because mm -hmm. find their backstory, you hear that they had an interest at some point. Um, but I, I'm thinking that some of the younger scholars are actually looking to our resources because they're also looking at their own personal history. Um, and so I think that you're beginning to see a change in both of what we're doing and what historians are doing. There isn't, the, the line that used to divide us is beginning to change or thin, or there's some dots there rather than having a solid line. Um, some of the more innovative, when I say innovative, those who are working in digital humanities are turning to sources like Ancestry and Family Search yes. and realizing that you know we're looking at the same sources but for different purposes. And so they're becoming more aware of some of the things that we're looking at, but their scope is broader than an individual or a family or one community. Um, so I think in the, in the coming years, we're going to just see so many new discoveries. And it's one of the reasons why I'm really thrilled to be at the Smithsonian, because we have this one massive project that we're working on, which is to transcribe the records of the Freedmen's Bureau. I'm excited about it because those records have a wealth of information. I know you've had other guests on your show talk about it. But once we have transcribed those records, we'll be able to start asking new questions. And then we'll have the data to begin to, um, begin to look at what is revealed in those records and then try to have a better understanding of what actually transpired. A lot of Americans don't really think about the Reconstruction era. You know, we have those who focus on the Civil War era and then some part later in the 20th century and they kind of skip over reconstruction. They skip over what actually transpired. How did this country reunite? How mm -hmm. did we establish ourselves? You know, who was really involved and what did they really do? Yes. Uh, I'm excited about that as a project, but I'm also excited in terms of what discoveries everyone's gonna make and how we can connect them to other record sources. So um, That's I'm sitting here. <laughs> You know, trying to figure out how I'm going to clone myself to do all the other things. <laughs> well, I, I, have a, I have a speculation about perhaps why that period's not covered as well as it could be. And we both share the same I mean, we, we share the same feeling when it comes to that, that. We feel as though it was people were shocked that a goodly portion of our people achieved what they achieved. In, in such, such a, a short period of time. Yeah. Record <laughs> speed. Yeah. It scared them. I, 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 that's that's just how I look at it. I mean, I 
this this crowd knows me and <laughs> it scared them it i really feel like it it you know the reconstruction period scared the bejesus out of those that were looking at us because they were like well wait a minute they just came out of slavery so how is it that they can become doctors become lawyers become politicians senators local just everything how can you build a school how can you educate how can you i mean just all of these things that we ended up doing within that short period of time of the reconstruction era that it was just mind-blowing and they were like no we need to put the brakes on this right now and they slowed it up but you know there there are so many different ways of looking at that period there's so many different ways of looking at slavery we still don't understand slavery um i mean really when you start to as as i've been looking at a lot of um, other researchers and the discoveries that they're making there was there was there was a multitude of forms of slavery. You know, there are certain regions where it was practiced at different times. And, you know, on the individual level, I'm sure you found in your own personal research different types of slavery that was, you know, practiced. Um, the negotiations, the kind of understandings that went on uh, with the people who were enslaved and the people who enslaved them. We're standing now at a point with DNA to begin to understand all of those complicated relationships. Yes. And, and it's very difficult to deal with. Um, and what you're, what you're looking at with the Reconstruction era as well is, it's a period that followed a major era where a lot of people died. So they grieved for a very long time. There, were, there was a loss of life due to war. There was a loss of life due to the violence that was committed against the people who some thought created or caused the war. There was a lot of grief, a lot of death, a lot of destruction. And I think the miracle that occurred was that we were able to reunite. I mean, when you stop and think about what actually transpired where we were on the brink of breaking up and we fought over it, and that's everybody because we're all in it together. And somehow through a miracle, we were able to reunite and figure out something. Uh, of, course, of course, there was a lot of bloodshed. Of course, the country turned topsy-turvy in every different way and whatever, but we were able to reunite. And there are stories that are buried within that experience that we haven't fully understood, we haven't fully uncovered. Um, I like to look at the Freedmen's Bureau as sort of a starting point or pivotal point between the past and the present that you know we've sort of inherited. Uh, there were relationships, there were negotiations that took place that we can't fully understand with those complex relationships uh, that were formed, uh, the experiences that we thought uh, we we believe that you know what the Freedmen's Bureau represent, represented and what it actually did or didn't do. Uh, when you look at it, the historical truths that are beginning to surface in terms of why it was created and what it was intended to do, you understand that uh, it wasn't just this federal agency that came in and, and said, we're going to help the black people or we're going to help those who are leaving um, a, a lifetime of enslavement. The people who were, they were designed to help had to play significant roles in that process. 
It wasn't a matter of, you know, African-Americans just sitting on a plantation or wherever they were waiting to be rescued. Right. Uh, they were participants in that process. And there are a lot, there's a lot more to understand about that process. There's a lot more to understand about our families. Uh, uh, in reading works like Herbert Gutman's uh, uh, examination of the African-American family and all of the archival um, record trails that were left behind about it that he was able to examine. It's pretty phenomenal that you had people who were separated by hundreds of miles, who had a concept of family, whose parents and siblings might all be in different places, but that didn't stop them from trying to get back to home or to reunite or, or, or start a family again. Uh, it's a phenomenal period. It is. And, you know, we have the, the biggest part is that we have records. This is the part that really excites me. It's not a matter of someone speculating uh, about this. We now have evidence that we can start piecing together or that uh, others have pieced together to reunite our families on paper and then to say, hey, I'm here because they did that. Uh, one of the things that inspired me with the Freedmen's Bureau records was I had oral history about my, uh, an ancestor who was separated from her family. And all I knew was that she was sold south. And I combed through the Freedmen's Bureau records and like the true genealogist that I am, or was at the time, I was really obsessed. And I kept going back to the archivist saying, I don't understand why my family's not here and the records, they should be here. I know they're there, you know, so on and so forth. And I'm talking about, I spent about six months pulling every single Freedmen's Bureau record in the vicinity of where my family lived. And one day the archivist said, I got a surprise for you. And I said, what? He said, uh, you know, there's that census that they took in uh, Princess Anne County, which is where my family's from. He said, uh, I found something that I think might, you know, make you smile. And so what he pulled was the other half of the census. And the first family on the first page was mine. Wow. From that point on, whenever I, I approached him for records that, you know, in, in fact, I could, I had gotten to the point where I could call to the National Archives to say, I'd like to pull these records and they would pull them for me because I had been searching through them for so long. But the point that I'm trying to make is, is that I made this connection in those records that inspired me. And because I said, you know, I spent the time looking through these records. I had the access because I live and work in, in DC, but it's, it's gonna be more difficult for others who don't live in this vicinity. I wish the, you know, this is another one of those things that I kind of wished into existence. Um, I wanted to, I wanted those Freedmen's Bureau records to be available to researchers all over the place. And um, I'm happy to say that I'm involved in that, but sort of um, in connection to that, I'm also aware of other digital humanities projects that have been launched as a result of what's going on with the Freedmen's Bureau records. And so they're asking questions about um, what actually transpired on the ground. You know, what did freedom look like? What did uh, gradual emancipation look like? Where did it take place? How did it take place? Who was involved with it? And so they're charting, uh, and, and I'm speaking of a project called Visualizing Emancipation. Um, they're taking some of these resources that we're looking at, uh, the individual instances of where people 
you know, uh, were advertised as runaway slaves or they um, were identified as people who were caught for whatever reason, for whatever crime, um, they escaped. I mean, you know, all sorts of different um, events that relate to emancipation or uh, when the federal troops appeared and, and uh, freed slaves or helped um, encourage them to leave the plantation or wherever they were being enslaved. We're beginning to see some of that information being documented and recorded um, and made accessible for our research. Cool. I know so, I'm all over, but um, this is this is the reality of who I am in my life. <laughs> Sorry to jump. I have one because this is actually perfect on the topic of transcription. Uh -huh. Got an excellent question from Catherine Williams. Have you approached the OGS? And for those of you who aren't familiar, OGS stands for Afro-American Afro History and Genealogical Society. Have you approached the OGS organization? about donating their extensive research publications for digitization from past decades? That is um, a more complex question than I can really fully answer. Um, from what I understand that Augs has worked with FamilySearch in the past, and I, I shouldn't say in the past, uh, Augs is working with FamilySearch now with some of their uh, research projects. Um, OGS is a different entity, and so is the Smithsonian. There are a whole lot of legal um, issues to consider for that. Um, but I do know that OGS has, and I'm trying to, you have to forgive me, because my, my recall of OGS goes back to the 70s and 80s. Um, and I've been uh, interacting with them for a bit. I don't believe that we have actually had any discussions about that, but I, and I thought that, and, and please forgive me if I'm misquoting it, but I thought that they had some sort of an arrangement with FamilySearch to... Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, also, hopefully a quick one. Are you accepting donations? And this is, this is from a young lady called uh, Karen Sutton. I think she's working on a dissertation and would like to be able to provide that, provide that to the library. I'll say this much. Uh, we have received some things of that nature, but with um, dissertations, if they end up in the um, ProQuest, um, is it ProQuest now uh, that has the uh, dissertations and theses? Yes. Or is it, it JSTOR? Then the, JSTOR had them they, too? They do too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, so it would, it would um, come in that way. However, if the research relates in some manner to what's being researched at the Smithsonian, you might want to go to the main page of, uh, for NAMAC. There's a section that, uh, where you can send uh, your query regarding a potential donation. And what happens is a staff person will send that out to the curator who's responsible for that subject area. So if it's dealing with uh, slavery and that the slavery era, we have a curator who is responsible for that, who would review it. I don't want to say no. I would say contact us with the offer and allow that curator to determine whether or not it would fit with uh, the other research collections at the, okay. at the museum. So the dissertation she was asking about deals with free blacks uh, who fought in two Virginia counties during the American Revolution. Oh, and I would also suggest to, um, and, and this is something that we do 
at the Smithsonian is to say that we're not the only institution, we're not the only repository that could actually, uh, that would be interested in that sort of research. And having been an, uh, having been an employee of the DAR library. They may be, yeah. There, I was often, I was actually actively uh, trying to develop a collection on African-American resources during the revolutionary era. Uh, so I know that there is an existing uh, collection there that you might want to add that as well to yeah. the DA, because uh, when I was there, I worked on the book Forgotten Patriots, and I was one of the principal researchers who was gathering material for um, African American and Native American patriots. So I know that it would definitely fit in that collection. Yeah, and I was getting ready to tell her that she could go to the DAR because they do yeah. because of that specific collection that you're speaking about. So and here, I want you to also understand, and I, I recommend to anyone who wants to offer uh, their writing or some, some items to a specific institution, if one institution is not able to accept it, don't hesitate to ask for a recommendation of where else they think one thinks that they should uh, possibly offer it for donation. Because sometimes we have an understanding of other collections where we think that it might fit in. Um, I do extensive, uh, an extensive amount of research at the Library of Congress, the, the DAR, the National Archives, and some other libraries. So, you know, consider those other institutions as well. Okay, thank you for that. Sharon McAllister, yes, you can watch our episodes um, on demand either here on Facebook under the videos tab or they're uploaded every Monday to YouTube. I actually answered her. I, and okay. I also want to remind you, please send emails to us if you have questions, because I know we never have enough time to uh, cover all of the material that was in my mind and your mind about what we were going to discuss. Um, you can send it to askalibrarian at si.edu. Okay. I put it in. I, I, I saw the thing. We already had it because there are, you had a lot of questions. Um, I've got a quick one. Brenda? Yeah. Um, to answer your question, I've got two chapters on doing local local history search in my book, Practical Genealogy, 50 Simple Steps to Researching Your Family. It's available online everywhere, and there's low, if you Google that, there's loads of information online about that too for free. You don't necessarily have to buy my book. <laughs> um, so Can I think too about you all? I'm, I'm really glad to see the work that you're doing. Uh, we need lots of case studies. We need ones that are as massive as the projects that you're working on. Uh, we need loads of examples um, to present um, case studies of some of the challenges that one faces in research. So I applaud you for that and I applaud you for this platform. Thank I'm you. like really to see this. <laughs> You know, and, and the other side of it is, you know, I, I've been binge watching different uh, genealogy uh, programs. And I like the fact that you're dealing with who you are, your honest and genuine responses, um, the emotional roller coaster that one goes through yes. with research, how you tackle and approach the research, the difficulties. I, I love the fact that you have groups of support, uh, different um, I'll say committees of genealogy to work on different <laughs> aspects of your research. So I really applaud you for presenting all of that and sharing it with the genealogy community. 
you serve as a beacon for encouraging others to not only learn to do it, but continue and persevere through all of the challenges that one faces with this research. Um, I'm a pretty solitary person, so I love what you're doing. And, and there's some things that you say that echo with what I feel, but I don't necessarily express. So, Oh, I, really... I got you. I'm going I'm to I'm take care of that for you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I will oh. be the one to say it. Um, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, that really means a lot. Yeah, so that, that kind of touched me. And so I, I appreciate you um, making that comment. And we are very happy to do what we do and how we do it. And um, it's so exciting. That brings us up to our hour. Thank our you hour. so much for um, sharing your knowledge and your enthusiasm and your, your pointers with them, with both us and the audience. Right. And what I want to do is kind of send some of these questions to you if I can, so we Thank can you. get them answers, the ones that we did not um, get done. And... Um, just thank you again for coming on our show and just thank just you. being here and answering those questions. I'm so excited to have you here. I am. I'm glad. And I'm actually, I'm glad that you're a DAR. <laughs> you are holding the spots and space and energy there. Yeah, I try. <laughs> okay. Oh, so to our Can I get some cake? <laughs> So to our audience at home, thank you so much for sharing a part of your Sunday with us. Next week, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, working with DNA matches with Blaine Bettinger. Yes, so I want you guys to come with your questions. Actually, it is please mandatory. Post, please post your questions on, on, the, the, events. Events, yes. on the event in the comments section. Yes, because it is mandatory that you guys come with those questions so that we can really get this stuff answer the way we mm. I just think people need to understand that's well, all I you know, people have been asking us for years about specific DNA questions where you're going to have Blaine yeah. you're going to have Blaine for and an entire hour that's right and he's noted and he's yes. you know well known author you know he all of that so definitely come with your questions okay so both to you Hollis to you Donia oh, you. to all of you at home have the have a blessed rest of the day and we will see you next week yes thank you again Hollis thank you so much have a great time. All Thank right. You.